This is Seam Change, where we chat to Aussie fashion creatives who are collaborating to find and remake textile waste. I'm Julia English, and this podcast is part of my PhD research at RMIT University. I'll be opening the door so you can listen in as I interview these designers about their experiences in collaborating with the local industry. Their thoughts and mine are our own and don't reflect either the university or any other companies we discuss. I'd like to acknowledge the Wundjeri people of the Kulin Nations as the traditional owners on the lands on which this podcast was recorded and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Today, I'll be chatting to Susan Dlawi. She's the designer behind Melbourne-based fashion brand SZN, which offer custom and one-off designs using unwanted materials. We're focusing on her collaboration with Neek, another Aussie brand, for their Reneek Renew initiative, where she pieced together their textile waste into a limited run of oversized patchwork linen dresses. This project is only one part of Susan's work with her brand SZN, which she started in 2012, and although she's celebrating the brand's 10-year anniversary this year, it's likely you haven't heard of her, as she's enjoyed keeping it small and embracing the making process. Using textile waste has always been a key part of her design approach, which has evolved into her signature mismatched pieced fabric aesthetic, which she showcases through loose and comfortable styles. Like many creatives, she juggles her brand with a few other jobs, including teaching a second stitch, a social enterprise which offers fashion production training for migrants, refugees and asylum seekers. And she also works as a DJ. A pretty cool mix, in my opinion. Follow along as we walk through the process of creating this collaboration and talk about the ins and outs of working with others in this way. I also ask her the tough questions, like finances and what growth looks like for her. This is Seam Change, and we're chatting to Susan Dlawi about how SZN has collaborated to remake waste. Thanks, Susan, so much for coming on the podcast today and for agreeing to be part of this research. Thank you for having me. Obviously, this project's about your work with Neek for their Neek Renew project. For everybody listening, can you give me a bit of a description of what the outcome looks like? So what's the garment that you produced as part of that? So I've made for Nick a long sleeve linen dress slash shirt. I, I consider it a gender neutral or gender fluid garment. It's bat winged. It's patchworked from different weights of linen, features two inseam or front pockets, depending on the garment that I used. Um, it's black. It's got a crew neck and a round hem. Great. Very descriptive, fashion-orientated <laughs> way of describing that. So obviously we can kind of imagine what the final outcome looks like now, but winding the clock back, can you tell me where did this idea, what was the very first spark? Uh, Nick approached me with a really open brief and just said, we have a lot of um, garments that we can't put back into the retail stream, whether they're returns or manufacturing faults or um, just some garments that maybe were like out of season or had like a kind of manufacturing fault that meant that they were going to be recalled basically because they couldn't guarantee that they wouldn't keep having that same 
problem. Maybe it's a zipper that they had one person return or 10 people return. They went, okay, we're pulling all of them. So they have a stack of garments. They just said, we're doing this thing called Renique. Um, we've done something like this before where we've featured other artists who get to rework our stuff in different ways. They'd had like another person do like a shirt project and other sorts of things. So they said, what item would you want to manufacture if you want to work with us that we could sell on our platform and hopefully use our platform to promote you and vice versa? I pitched three garments to them, like a bucket hat, a tote. Actually, just a bucket hat and a tote. The idea for the top came more about because the bucket hat and tote at the amount of work that it takes to create them was at a price point they couldn't sell it for. And it wasn't at a price point that I'd want to make them for them. And also I wanted their prices to be on parity with my items. So if I sell a bucket hat for 135, they should too. So those ideas had to get scrapped and we went back to the drawing board and they basically said something else I could make that they could see would fit within both our price structures. And so they came up with that top. And mind you, I think the top's quite priced highly compared to their other stuff, but then considering the work, I'm comfortable with that price point. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. It sounds like it was quite a negotiation, but you got there in the end. When you came back with that second pitch, did you just pitch the dress or did you give them some other options as well? Uh, I think I pitched them like a short version. So kind of like the same pattern, but a cropped version and a long past the knee version, potentially a maxi. And we just went, let's start with one style and see how it goes. And then follow follow on from there but to be honest the first two iterations didn't just mean that was the end of that process I also when I got that first stash of clothing realized there were so many repairs that were really simple and actually thought I actually objected to wanting to cut up their garments I was like I can't cut up something that I think I should donate to secondhand or just sell and I didn't understand that I was like I think in a bigger business they don't have the time to really look at each individual garment's ability to be recycled let alone re- upcycled um, and because where I teach second stitch they have an alterations branch I put them in contact with them and said maybe you want to contact them so they actually get things now altered through second stitch that can be altered and that's a whole other thing that they're offering so they are now selling those garments with an alteration and then a special tag that kind of says repaired by second stitch which supports the school and then I got those garments that they weren't like they were ripped or a bit more broken. And to be honest, the standard compared to what I'm used to recycling was quite high. I would still, I think, in many instances, prefer to repair those garments and keep them as is, but I can only absorb so much stuff in my wardrobe that, and they don't want that to happen. They really need to know what's out there is what they are producing, and then the renique is a really separate thing. So it was a lot for me to get my head around, and I'm still in two minds about it, but it was such a nice process to go through and to be recognised by a bigger brand that was open about that process because there are many brands that want to do this but don't want their name associated with it. Yeah, so true. Do you know anything about why they thought to approach you? Like I feel like I'd be so flattered but I'd be like, oh, why why me? Like how did you know that that you'd be someone who'd be open to that? I'm not sure. They must have seen my work somewhere. I think we should look back into that. I mean, I had that pop-up shop with Curated and I got a few offers through that. So I think once the Australian Fashion Council put out promo with Curated and we had quite a few events that brought industry people. So often it's not maybe the brand, but maybe someone that works for the brand that's noticed you and then they recommend you. So that where I get my denim from, which is a place that doesn't want their name associated with it, that was just to create it. That happened to be at one of our opening nights and said, oh, I'm like a person who works for this brand and um, we have a lot of scrap denim. Would you be interested in that? And it was kind of like that. They said, we'd heard about you and your style and shapes, like my silhouettes seem to reflect their minimalism and general kind of approach to fashion I guess I think a lot of they I like their style it is very architectural geometric and minimalist and I think that in itself is an approach to sustainability 
and I think they thought that that'd be a good match. Like I haven't seen them yet collaborate with someone who's really colourful, for example. Yeah, no, it's so true. I was actually even just going to ask like what appealed to you about working with Neek, but you've kind of already answered that or like what you knew about them before. I mean, the real, real honest answer was the chance for a promotion because that's a small brand. I'll take any opportunity, any opportunity just to be seen by a wider audience than my own. And when I saw that their profile had quite a few followers, I thought this could be great. Even if I only do one garment for them, it might be an opportunity to try something else. Yeah. Which sounds so capitalist, but that's kind of like we're a small business. And I try to be brutally honest. It's part of my whole business is my brutal honesty means that people know what they're getting. And I, I hope that's a good quality. Well, I'm very appreciative of it. And as well, like, I love how you mentioned that for you, even coming into that project, you sort of looked at the garments and you're like, oh, these don't even need like fully upcycling. They can just have repair. And I love that you connected them up with Second Stitch. I actually went into the Renique or the store that stocks the stuff and had a look at them all. And I was like, oh, so many of them are repaired. That's so great. And you couldn't even tell where they, what sections of them were repaired. So maybe with that, you kind of have touched a little bit on the design development process, but could you talk me through how that actually happened in practice, like communication? You know, was it something that took months kind of to help us, help me and help everybody else as well, kind of get a feel for that timeline and what that felt like? They're really open. So they they were when we got to that third garment, which was really like once they decided that I was going to make something. I actually presented them with a denim version of it and said it'd be very similar to this, but in linen. I went ahead and made one, and that was probably over six, three to six months from the time that I'd already rejected that first box of stuff, had done the samples for the hat and the tote, realized that the pricing wasn't going to work, so we changed tact. I made yeah one garment. Actually, I actually made a pair of pants. I forgot I made a drop cotch pair of pants. Sent them to them took me, I don't know, three to four months to make those pieces. It's not how long it takes me to make that piece. That's how in my workflow I had time to make it in that thing. Send it through to them, yeah, after about four months. And then they took about a month or two to come back to me because they were going to actually photograph them and see what they thought and how it would sit. They didn't want the pants in the end and they went with the top. And then I guess it's only really been promoted by them in the last six months. I've had they, – they were finished and made before Christmas last year. They were up on their site actually for a while before they actually did an active promotion. So that Renika account came a little bit later. And I think they must have been, I don't know this for certain, internally trying to figure out do we market this stuff as part of us or as a separate thing? And that's the hard thing because I assumed it would be a part of the neat thing, which would be to their current number of followers. Now they've created a Renika account. It's probably to a little bit less followers, but um, it's got to focus in on sustainability. So in that regards, it's a good focus. It's still a sideline of the idea yeah and the process wasn't I mean realistically that's why I also had was suggesting the repairs is I had said I could do those repairs but I'm not interested in being a repairs person that's not my skill set or nor my desire so really I'm not going to do that but I think you should do that and then this is the kind of thing I do design and these are existing patterns that I already have so I can actually make these a lot quicker than I could if we decide to redesign something completely new and I did want it to be something that my customers could then buy if they wanted to, because they probably bought something that was a similar shape and style and also vice versa, that people who bought that might recognize that shape and go, oh, okay, a batwing top by SN is a batwing top by SN. And then if they decide to go towards the denim, they could do that. The same kind of mindset I'd hoped, but it's hard. I feel like with collaboration, it's not always as um, fluid as you hope it would be. And not always as maybe um, 
beneficial to both parties because it's a lot of work for them to facilitate the one-on-one negotiations all via email. I mean, it's because of Corona mostly, but and they were really generous. Like they'd send me a box of stuff via courier and I'd go through it and I'd only pick up what I would use. And I'd send back to them all of the scraps, every little bit I didn't use. Cause I also said to them, I can recycle it through my recycling program or I think you should because I pay for my recycling program. And they're like, they will take it on board. We can recycle it. So they, it was good. I don't know if they'd considered all those aspects. I don't know if other people who'd worked with them had put those requirements into place, but I thought if I'm going to try and do it, try and do it as ethically as I could try and do it. And they were really on board for that and very positive. Like the, oh, it's always been like a positive response. Like we love the top. We just can't sell at that price. Or we love this and we just can't, you know. And they, they're a smaller team than I realised, I guess. I always think of these brands as massive, massive but really the people who you work with, the designers and the marketing team are quite small, yeah. So I guess next up, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the making process for yourself. Like you've said that you do everything yourself um, and that it's sort of a one-woman team. Do you have a studio set up at home? How's that kind of negotiated? Um, And do you sort of have certain days of the week that you work on your own practice? So I've always worked from home and I guess it's one way of keeping the cost down, not to pay rent and an additional space. When I went into the retail store, which is at St. Collins Lane, I moved a machine there and so I, I look after that shop one day a week so my presence in my retail store is proportional to my representation in it so we really have like pretty much seven racks and if you have one rack you have one day of work two two days and so forth and I was in I've been in there for three years at the St Collins Lane shop we don't really have a name so we keep just calling it the St Collins Lane pop-up we've been popped up for three years I had my machine in there for a long time so I'd really do most of my work actually from there because I'm really able to focus like retail is so dead I have a lot of time to get a lot done when I was there. And then when Corona hit, I took the machine out and I've just put a domestic there. So ironically, I was working on a domestic at home, industrial at the shop, and now I've switched it around. I've always kept the space in my house that's been dedicated to the business. So really, it's my bedroom. I only have machines and a bed. I guess it's because I wanted my work to be part of my lifestyle and not the other way around. So I've always got things set up. So if inspiration strikes, I can just go and do it. It's not something I have to set up. And it's also something I can leave really easily. I can integrate into my life and not have it dominate. It's funny because most people think having a machine in your room is a a dominant thing, but I actually feel it's the other way around. If it's always set up, I can do, oh, a hem, leave it, repair something. And I find myself much more able to do that. And I feel like Space is a big thing when it comes to repairs. So many people have said to me, oh, I'd do it, but I have to get the machine out. So I try and run the business in a way that I think I would like, I like I run it the way I'd like to live. It's really a lifestyle choice. It's a lifestyle choice I made from a long time ago. So I put about two to three days a week into the business. So one day in the shop and then two days at home, but I really juggle a lot of things. So yeah, maybe it's consistently two days a week for the last 10 years. I know I've always, I've always run like this. It's been a long-term way of operating. But that means in the space, I have a cutting table now, an industrial overlock and industrial straight stitch all in that room. So I'm also limited my, to my space, how I work. And upcycling works very nicely in that way that you're working with smaller pieces anyway. I'm very rarely working with a big roll of fabric that needs to be rolled out for 10 metres or something. Like I just don't work anyway much like that. Yeah, and it's nice. I like I like working my pajamas with a cup of tea and a good podcast on yeah yeah I was gonna say I know my studio setup's the same like if I don't have it have a space set up to do sewing it just 
won't really happen very frequently at all. Yeah, I guess one of the things that I'd love to ask you a little bit more about in terms of the project sort of looking across the whole, in terms of who was responsible for what elements, um, could you sort of tell me about how between you and Nick you sort of assigned responsibility? I guess I was just design and manufacturer and they're everything else. Because really like they supplied the materials, they they're doing the marketing and the distribution and they did all the comms to go back and forth between their team and then me and then the delivery and the pickup of the goods hasn't been any cost I've incurred. So in that way, it's not exactly like, I mean, the garment's being sold on consignment. So I have responsibility for that garment if it doesn't sell. <laughs> but um, I also, that's also another reason why it's in my style. So if it doesn't sell there, I, I would then want to sell it through my own avenues in the future. But really, that's almost like being more like a subcontractor to them. When they start taking care of comms and material supply, it is a that is a burden of time and money that lots of small businesses have to shoulder. So I do respect them for that a lot, actually, yeah. Did they produce the promotional imagery or is that something that you're responsible for? The one with me in it? I just sent that to them as an example of what I'd made. I didn't think they were going to use it. I was like, whoa, just went from being designer to model, whoa. Yeah, I do take, I'm a photographer, I do take photos, so I know how to take an okay photo, but I didn't think that was going to be the one that they would do. So for about six months on the website before they really promoted it, it was just that image. It was only really yeah, recently when they've started promoting Renique and specifically that, that garment, they've gotten a few shoots done. How do you feel about that? Well, I try never to send a photo I'm not completely happy with. So maybe they thought I wanted it to be a primary image because I was a very clean image and I, you know, had a nice clean background. If it had just been me in front of the wardrobe going, this is what the garment looks like. So some of them were just flat photos on the bed. Like that's what I made. Like they're never going to use those. You kind of said just before the, the sales process, it's based on consignment. Are you happy to share any more about sort of the process involved in that or whether you knew that was going to be the way it was structured going into this? We had some discussions. I'd prefer a wholesale, but then wholesale, you get less return. And I feel, and it's maybe a personal feeling, I feel when you're doing a wholesale, you're more accountable to someone else's timeline when it's consignment and you get a higher percentage. It's actually, I felt more self-dictated. So I was like, okay, I'll produce what I want. This is the price point that I want. And yeah, so I guess it was just a negotiation that went back and forth. And obviously we had that negotiation already with those other garments. So I kind of knew, yeah, I guess I kind of knew what was going to happen. So when I know that the garments were too expensive for the amount that we had nego- that I was suggesting was going to be the consignment amount, that was already set in, set in process for that's how we would negotiate the shirts because I'd already agreed on those basis with the other one. I do feel like finances can kind of be one of those areas which people are a bit shy about or we're not, we're not very good at sharing. But it, it can be really hard to even know how big someone else is or, how, you know, what they're making money on or how they're making money at all. There's a lot of illusion about in brands that they're more successful financially than they are because of social media. Like I think my brand sometimes can present as way bigger. And when I go, no, it was just me. Um, I did all of that. <laughs> and then those garments take so much more time than I ever think they will. So often the price point's got nothing to do with the time it took me, but the amount that I think will hit the market and it will sit okay for relative garments. But I imagine if everyone's doing that, we all have a price point that's actually not reflective of the work at all. And we already know that with fast fashion. 
and I wouldn't class Nick as fast fashion in, in any way. I'm saying that with really, really cheap garments, that price, as we know, it doesn't represent the true labor costs. So you can also imagine in the artisanal sense or the more small business sense, I say I pitch my price according to my niche and my other peers. But if we're all doing that and not, none of us are really making a massive living, I'm assuming that that price in itself is not that accurate. So it, that's a problem that exists at that, I wouldn't say it's high end, but that niche, the niche market for local cottage industry micro businesses, I'd say that the price points aren't representative of the garment, but more like a market average. So like if you're happy to share with like your income from this brand, is it breaking even? Are you making any profit on it? Obviously you're quite, you've been around for about 10 years almost. So I've never invested in my business beyond its means. So I will, I've always done very small things. So even with this project, and this is a hard thing to quantify because when you're upcycling, your material costs are nil, your labor costs are everything. So if I factor in my time, I am making fabric and then I'm making a garment. And that, then you go, am I factoring in my time as a machinist, an entry-level machinist, a senior machinist, because I've got a few years behind me, but I'm slow, I'm a designer, I'm not really a machinist. And if I cost, if it, you know, if I'm getting paid 25 an hour to make one meter of fabric, that fabric is now worth, even though it was free, essentially the input's free. They're not paying me to use the fabric and I don't pay them for the fabric. And all my materials are like that. But after I spend hours making the fabric, I start going, well, it's actually about 50 bucks a meter now. Or is it actually 50 to 100 bucks a meter? Because me as an artistic practitioner is now assembling a piece of work that becomes a new piece of work. And this is a hard thing to price anyway. So when I do commissions, I tend to price per hour. Um, and if I'm doing work like this, it's just the market price for the garment. And I break even because I haven't invested any money in it. It's my time that's the compromise. So I guess, yeah, I could. I, I would never say that I've earned a lot, but I would say that it's that discretionary amount that you allow yourself to be working on something without being paid. But if I factor in my, my wage and my skill level, it's worse than I'd ever imagine. <laughs> yeah, you're like, don't think too closely on that, right? No, I had my, my sustainability teacher, Dr. Stephen Wright, he said this thing to me one day that made me really think. He goes, I realised if I stopped working on my label, I would be making money. <laughs> That's something to realise. Like if I today decided to not make any given garment but instead just went to go work a retail job, I would probably make more than I do in my business and that's supreme honesty but also I have worked retail and I have worked for the government and I know that those things are things I can, can do but not that I feel like doing right now so but my happiness is making these things so it's a trade-off and that and I teach and, and I DJ and I have a few other ways of like being able to yeah bring income into my household. It's nice to hear a bit more about the motivators that drive people I know when I was a student I kind of we're still trying to figure out like what makes you have a practice when you or like a brand when you're not actually making money on it. And I think it's something which clearly, you know, you've come to terms with for yourself um, for sort of what it offers you. Is there anything in particular, you kind of lightly touched on it, but any particular values or ethos or rewards that you get out of working in this way? I Like I realistic, I love fashion. Even before I knew or thought I was going to do fashion, I have this high like love of it. I used to devour magazines photo shoots everything and from everything like sometimes people think because I got quite serious fashion that I would look at something really like glitzy and shiny and be like oh I'm like no I love it all I can even look at a whole bunch of fast fashion garments and appreciate the design went into it 
Now, the ethics and the process behind it is a deep source of frustration, and it's really painful to be a part of an industry that's now recognised for what we've always kind of known exists, but it doesn't take away from this inherent beauty that I think fashion garments and good design has, and I love good design. So I feel privileged to be able to produce something that anyone even looks at. Like that in itself is a really, it's a great source of personal pride. And I guess when I worked in other industries like retail and policy work, while I liked the work, it never had that same sense of satisfaction at the end of the day when I finished something. Like I knew that was kind of a thing when my kid was born, um, you have to fill out their birth certificate with your career, which I thought was interesting. I was like, does it really matter? But anyway, I got to write fashion design and I was so proud of myself. I was like, I've arrived at an age where I'm doing the thing I want to do and I'm happy to write it down. And I kind of reflected at that moment going, how would I have felt if I'd written public servant or teacher? And I love those things that I did, but they didn't sit the same way that I was just like, whoa, I've done, I'm doing it. Like, it's a really nice feeling. Yeah. So it's a weird thing. I think, and also it helps that I've had the background. I've done years and other things. I've got friends that perhaps often as fashion designers, you're always questioning why the hell you're in it, especially when you're not making the money. And we're so cynical. Like I tried to source this thread. It's taken me three months and the bloody thread hasn't arrived. And, and if it arrives, it's 30 bucks a spool because it's sustainable. And you're just complaining all the time. And I love, I even love that complaining. Standing around with other fashion designers complaining about fashion is like one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> but these people who came fresh out of school into a practice and maybe had a label for five, six, 10 years before they got burnt out and tired, often would look at the job I had, which was the public service job, especially when you're in Cambridge, which is where I trained, and go, oh, I just wish for an easy day, a nine to five and a steady wage. And they want to do things like have kids and a mortgage and all those things. And that's a sacrifice, though. I mean, I was like, I had a kid, but things like mortgages and other sorts of like international holidays, that's the first thing that I lost when I quit my public service job. But I gained all these other sort of happinesses. And I must say, being in sustainable fashion specifically has given me approach to living more, people say it's frugal, but I'd say it's a lifestyle choice to really address how you consume stuff. That's in its own way saved me a lot of things, saved me time and money and even how I furnish my life. But then the people I've met associating with that. So I've met a lot of periphery people to sustainability, like the compost lady down the road who I met through Share Waste because I found out about the Share website or the other students and PhD people or I get to meet just talking about conceptual approaches to fashion and I really like that. So all of those things remind me why I do it. So I'd love to hear if you're happy to share. So Neek handle the sales side of things, but it is, uh, it's made to order, I believe, if that's right, and it's on consignment. Is that correct? Not made to order. I've pre-made five, six, six garments, yeah. When they, I think when they realised how long it took me to make them, when they said yes to that idea and it took me four months, they were like, ooh, we can't expect gut, like customers wait four months. So I made a few in advance. I think if they take off, I've sold a couple, I think when we get to maybe half sold, I might then have the impetus to start making more. So then it would be more like a made-to-order thing. But these first five or six that I made, I say five or six, it was a sample and then the five, uh, kind of testing the waters. I was actually just about to ask, so how many have you made? But you've already answered that question. Not many, but I mean, not many by their scale. But for my, for me, that's a lot. I hardly ever repeat most designs I do, which is a whole other thing about how long pattern making could take. But a lot of my denim pieces 
I maybe do two or three, if that, off the one pattern before I rework the pattern some other way. So I'm constantly changing style. So it was really hard. And a little bit, it can get boring to be like the same dress I go, the same dress I go. And I say that with six. I follow machinists who will do 50 jackets or 200 jackets. I'm like, can't get my head across that. <laughs> I also can feel that same way. I'm like, oh, man, like how do you do this? So much respect for them. So much respect. And that's, a, that's why I say none of these things that I say aren't for me aren't good things they're just things I couldn't do like from the public service to the manufacturing of many garments that are the same style it's just personal choice and it's a luxury not luxury privilege to have a personal choice in that regards yeah earlier on um, in the discussion you mentioned that Nick take back the waste that you don't use which is pretty amazing because I wasn't expecting you to say that um, was that something that they came to you with or did you have to ask for that I guess I was just checking because I myself don't throw out my scraps. And then I thought, oh, cost-wise, it's going to cost me to throw out their scraps. And realistically, I'm already processing their scraps. So <laughs> um, I guess I was trying to ask in the hope that they would want to deal with it in some way. And so I guess I was also surprised when they said, oh, yeah, no, we have a recycling thing. I don't know what their recycling thing is. To be honest, I haven't inquired that deeply. I assumed it was going to be something like up apparel. But um, they said, no, we have something – they must do that with the garments they really don't do anything with, maybe stained garments or something. I said, no, we can recycle that, yeah, and we'll take that cost on board. So it was good that they were really quick to respond to that and, and open to the idea. Yeah, I don't I don't know what they're – it would be good. To, I should probably have asked exactly how are we going to recycle those things. But what I was sending back not just my little bits of scraps. My scraps are tiny. They're usually like 10 by 3 centimetres, like strips and little bits and pieces that are – and usually it seams. It's the harder joins that are harder to upcycle because you can't re-sew over them too many times. But I was also sending back garments that I just said these won't work. For example, they'd send me like a jumpsuit that just had too many seams, too many buttons. I said the time it takes me to deconstruct that garment to make the new one is too onerous for the cost of the garment. And this is the other thing is I can't upcycle everything at this particular price point. I'm not saying it can't be upcycled, but I had to make a call on what things I can and can't do which comes back to my design. So often people might assume if they only see one of those garments that some of those things are panels. They're all like pattern pieces, but it's one one pattern piece for both the front and the back. The work is in patchworking it together first and then I put the pattern on and cut it out. And I do that on purpose because I want the patchworking to shine, yes, and also it already looks quite complicated. And it's almost like building in variability. So every single garment has its own uniqueness and charm. I've been told by many people if I want to streamline my process, I should make smaller pattern pieces and then look for scraps that fit those, which is what I've seen other people do in the past. Like you can get like a panelled jumper that, or a panelled skirt where you know the panels will roughly fit within, say, the width of a jean leg because you can work that design in. Again, it's for me streamlining a process I don't want streamlined. I, I feel like every time there's an avenue to find a way to make more cash, I'm like, nah, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to find a way to keep it complicated. I guess that's like perfect opportunity to ask you, do you want to grow? Do you want this to get bigger? Or are you pretty happy with how things are? I think you put it really well. Like we said, I've accepted where I'm at. So I accepted my fate. Because I'm, and I challenge myself on it almost every year. Every once, two years, I have a bit existential brand identity crisis. where I'm like, I should be having this much like, like income in the year or made this many garments or I go too much social media, I go, I could look like that person. And I know full well that my stuff looks like it doesn't, like it looks like a particular way to another brand. And as I'm getting a little bit older and more and more challenging on those fronts, it, I doubled down on the, no, I actually am happy. And, yeah, recently last year I got 
kind of offered to do something like a mentorship, like as a paid mentorship with uh, another designer. And they had said to me, before agreeing to do this process, and it was really more like a business mentorship more than it was about design, they said, just journal your thoughts on what this would look like for your mind and tail. And I really had to write down, why do I do what I do? It's all the things you're asking. Why do I do what I do? Design was first, not money. Uh, how do I like to do what I do? Sustainability was first, not even not even the design. Actually, I must say in some ways I will, I will trump a design choice for a sustainability choice most times. I'll trump opportunity for design and sustainability, which we see in the NIC process. Like I really went first for the ethics really than I could go for the garment. I could have asked them to send me a whole bunch of really loose garments and made really simple things. So after journaling, it really made me realize that Things that were the forefront were the things I could maintain if I maintain it. And every time I've tried to do otherwise, I've compromised on some other part of the business. And until I could find a way to resolve that, it's not that I don't want to grow. I just don't think that there is a way to grow in the way I do it. And it's not that I, it's not through lack of trying. Like I've had, I've brought on machinists in the past, maybe about five years ago. I thought, okay, here's a set of patterns that I'm wasting by using once. I'm going to go make them in a bunch of, really good fabrics. So I bought um, some organic cotton that was locally milled and we made like 10 of each design. And to be honest, I am still selling those garments now. So that was the top, the, the cost I put into it and the time it took me to organize the machinist and, and that machine is just machined. They're a very experienced person, but they were, they don't do any of the cutting or the laying or the, or even the quality control. It was just a machining job and bless them they did a great job but they design corrected a thing that I had done intentionally so I had these asymmetrical necklines and they were like I think your neckline's wrong and just did all 10 symmetrically I'm like no they were never meant to be symmetrical it's a basic shirt the only detail was the neckline and also I can't not pay them for the time because I know how much time they put into it so then I got stuck in this mode of being like it's an experiment I tried it and now what I've done with those garments I didn't sell, I've over-dyed them with organic black dye to see, was it a color thing? Is it a shape thing? Is it a fabric thing? Or is it that that's not my thing and upcycling is? And so I've done that. I've hired and brought on before advertising and marketing help or brand consultants. And usually it's become it's come back to the manufacturing process. So my biggest loss of time is in the manufacturing process. If I can streamline that I could spend more of my personal time promoting the brand and my thing is if I spend too much time promoting I end up having only 10 garments on the rack so I have to balance my manufacturing with my promotion and I don't have any garments in like there's no storage of things apart from these garments that didn't sell they're they're actually still all on the rack I have about 30 literally in this whole world garments on a rack for sale nothing more so if I go now to this blitz of selling 50% off everyone and like market and spend a thousand bucks on ad campaigns it hits everyone and those 30 garments sell out, then I have nothing. It'll take me another year to produce 30 garments to sell. And also with that machinist, I did offer um, that person, I said, look, the shirt thing didn't really work out for me. How would you feel about doing some of the patchworking for me? Could you create me to reach out of the scraps that I provide you? And they were like, ooh, that's a lot of work. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> and then also how were they charged for that work? And I've thought about this, and that's maybe maybe where I'd go into the future is, if I can, maybe sourcing that fabric from someone else. And I've even looked online. I've looked at factories overseas that sell patchwork fabric, but it's always standardised. It comes as like a checkerboard thing. And then that's, for me, that's a compromise on the style and design. So I could send boxes of scrap garments. Like I go to the secondhand shop. I get what they want to throw under the tip. So the stuff that goes it gets rejected from the distribution center. I send it to say, I don't know, overseas somewhere where they do that. And they send it back to me. 
fabric that's squares. Uh, to me, that's not still not my style. So <laughs> I've tried to also part of the accepting of the process is reframing my mind. How do other artists, and that's a, call myself an artist rather than designer, work in a way that lets them express what they want? And this is a hard thing. Is fashion for me is an art but it's not accepted by most of the subsidies and government grant bodies as that it's a small business. But if I call myself a costume designer or a wearable artist, what I am making are pieces of artwork. I sell myself as a designer. I pitch myself in retail space as a small business, but I personally see myself as something like an artist working in fabric. Yeah. (laughs) So I know earlier on you mentioned working with Neek and it's Clearly, you know, from what you said previously about the denim that you've worked with before, where people aren't always happy to share where you get the materials from, have there been any sort of unique elements to this particular project that have made it different from the other ways that you've been sourcing waste or, uh, you know, garments or textiles to use in your work? The biggest one was the the initial lack of decision-making or personal decision-making in the fabric I was going to receive. Because when they sent me that first box, I was like, oh, well, I'm just getting anything. That's a whole different way to think. So when I go to a secondhand shop, when I go to the secondhand shop, rather, I go, there's a distribution center that collects bags of denim for me, but I've told them preemptively, please only collect blue and black denim. I don't collect anything else. Because once I had an open call for denim, I was getting so much stuff that I couldn't, I don't have the time to process. So I had to kind of, and that's one of the things, I have compromised even my own aesthetic to maintain a focus to do the denim in the way I do it. Because I love color but it's really hard to have a cohesion that presents in a marketable sense if you're doing and chopping and changing your colour. Your, yeah, it's hard to get sort of a consistency there. And I've had to kind of go, okay, if I want to appear in a marketing sense as having some design integrity, you have to have cohesion and focus. It's something I really instinctually want to disagree with, but it's the same with an artist. Most artists have a practice and they pursue one style and they really explore most elements. So I'm exploring denim mostly. And then I got this box of fabric from them that was everything from silk to cotton poplins to the linen, linen of different weights to canvases to denim to some some synthetics as well, some stretch, not stretch. I was like, whoa, I didn't really think when I said yes what I was able to process so I had to kind of reiterate to them respectfully that I'm not as big as I think I am. I have to cull this right back. And I did when I did the hat sample, I did try and c- combine all those fabrics to be like, what's it like if I try not to overthink it and just chop up all the garments that are the most ripped and worst that I could use? And it was it's harder to work in multiple fabric types at once. The scene, as you would know, like with rayon, they, oh, they also had a lot of viscose and tensile garments. The, it gives the denim doesn't want to give you go to wash it one shrinks one doesn't so while it looked cool it had this really wabi-sabi effect to how the hat did it was taking me so long to align the pieces and also because I'm working different weights I wasn't doing things like interfacing or fusing and I was just making a double like a reversible hat but that's really hard when the reversible part is against a tensile it can be floppy so I have to think where do I align it with the other side that maybe it's supported by canvas then you get back into wasting so much time for a hat that I would sell at 135 I think with them I could have gone away with selling it for about 70 they factor in consignment I probably get just over half that and when you spent two days making a hat you go no <laughs> I need some parameters yeah and so I guess I hadn't anticipated 
what I already knew to be true, which is you can't just be everything. You have to be focused. And it does suck, but you have to be a bit focused. You've really given a beautiful picture of like the whole journey going through um, that. Just kind of as a final wrap up, what advice would you give to other sort of small brands, businesses, emerging designers who want to kind of work in these ways? Is there anything, any yeah, advice or tips that you'd give them? Um, I guess it's what I was just saying. I think if you can really focus your aesthetic and your product offering, you will be able to streamline the things that you can control and those things that are out of your control, like the material choices or perhaps even the rate you're able to dictate at your, like, you know, or the rate you work at, the pace you work at. If you can't control those, you have some sort of sense of, um, it's not seriousness, but it's kind of like gravity to your design. And that as a designer is your quality that you're offering. My ability to upcycle is not, my strength, my ability to design is not even my strength. These are very basic shapes. Most students or anyone could do that shape. It is the desire to stick to it and do it, the consistency, the whole kind of package. It's all the things I hated the most when I came out of and when I went into fashion school. I was like, I want to make whatever I want. I want to make a ball gown, a pair of jeans, and this and that is hard to sell. And it's hard to do as a small business. It's hard to be everything. You could, that that can come and you can grow into it. And also wear your stuff. I always say to these people, stop buying other people's clothing and wear your own creations. You're the first person to test it and market it. And everyone goes, oh, what do you do, a fashion designer? What are you wearing? Mm, Target or whatever you bought from a secondhand shop. That's great. But that doesn't – you're your own best, like, test case. Because a lot of teachers told me, you're not your market. I think that – that can distance us, I think we can be our market. Sometimes the problems you're solving are the ones you know very well because you live in and around yourself all the time. Thanks so much um, for coming on the podcast today and for sharing all your insights into this particular project. It's been a real joy. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank Nick. I really do appreciate being recognised by both you and then by them. It's nice to be a part of the industry here. If you've enjoyed hearing about Susan's brand and want to check it out for yourself, have a look on her website, szn.com.au, to see the range and current pop-up locations. You can also see more of her work through her Instagram, szntheLabel, and find out about the brand's latest news. For more on the Renique Renew initiative, you can check out their specific Instagram, renique, R-E-N-I-Q-U-E dot renew. As for me, you'll find me on Instagram at underscore julia.english underscore, where I share my thoughts on fashion and sustainability, as well as what this looks like for me in the day-to-day, from what I'm reading, how I'm styling my wardrobe, to my latest bending project. Your thoughts matter to me, and I would love for them to contribute to my research. You can do this by sharing, liking, commenting, or reviewing this podcast and the snippets that you find on my social media channels. Through sharing these, you'll be agreeing that your input can be used to help inform my research and help me understand the value that this podcast might have. Through sharing this podcast, I'm hoping to be more transparent in the way I do research. However, for the sake of a smooth sounding podcast, this interview has been edited. And some sections may have been cut if they weren't suitable for public sharing. 
You'll find links to the transcript and citation information in the show notes. My PhD is funded by an Australian Government Research Training Scholarship and has had ethics approval through RMIT University. You can also find my contact details in the show notes should you have any questions about the research project.